What does it mean to be awestruck? To be awestruck, I think, means to be filled with wonder, to be filled with amazement, to be filled with awe at the overwhelmingly incomprehensible magnificence of something, whatever it is. Maybe it's the vastness of the universe. And, you know, if you've had a chance to look at some of the uh, photos from the Hubble telescope and, and how expansive it really is. Or maybe it's the amazing intricacy and complexity of, of the human body. Uh, and, when, and, and, and when you see this, whatever it is, <clears throat> the universe, or maybe it's simply the, the central nervous system, it, it's simply beyond comprehension as to how it could be how it could happen, how it all came together. I think the psalmist expresses this sense. I think he's awestruck when looking into the heavens and he says, the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. I I think David experienced it when when he was contemplating the human body, and he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. I think Job felt this way after God had shown him a a, a glimpse of his power and wisdom. Job says, behold, I am insignificant. What What can I reply to you? I lay my hands across my mouth. And the 24 elders in the book of the Revelation surrounding the throne of the Lamb, the throne of the Lamb in heaven, are awestruck. And it says, They fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their thrones before the throne, saying, Worthy art Thou, our Lord and our God, to receive, to receive glory and honor and power. And I think this sense of being awestruck is the response of the Apostle Paul as he now concludes his discussion of the work of of redemption that God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. We come to the end of chapter 11 today in our study in the book of Romans. And, And Paul just burst forth into this doxology This praise, awestruck by being reminded again, yes, even through his own writing as he's writing the book of Romans and he he thinks back on, on, on everything that he's just written and he's awestruck again at the greatness of God and the greatness of his work in Christ. And so as we look at this passage today in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. I've I've entitled the passage simply, Awestruck. And as we look at this passage, I hope that we might share in some measure Paul's understanding of what God has done in redemption, but we also might share in that feeling of being awestruck by what God has done. 
But you say, well, Ken, you know, this is this is Christmas. You know, we're supposed to be talking about, you know, the birth of Christ here and, and things. Well, I hope that we might be able to see the event that we celebrate at this season, the incarnation. I hope that we can see that in light of this part of the great work that God has done and that we might be filled with awe because of the greatness of God in his coming to the earth. <clears throat> so, Romans chapter 11 today, verses 33 to 36. The context here, I've already hinted at it, is extremely important. Paul has now concluded in these first 11 chapters his discussion of the work of God in providing salvation for the world through Christ. He began his discussion by demonstrating the universal sinfulness of, of all mankind. That was in those early chapters, chapters 1, 2, and, two and 3. And, and he demonstrates there that all people have sinned, and, and all because of the holiness of God and because of their sinfulness are under the, the judgment of God. And therefore, he demonstrates the need, the universal need of all people, without exception, for the gospel. But he doesn't stop there. He, he then demonstrated that through Christ, God has provided the very righteousness that we need. You see, that's the problem. We, God is righteous and holy, and, and we're not. And how can we stand in his presence without that righteousness? Well, in the gospel, through the work of Christ, God has provided the very righteousness that we need to stand in the presence of God. And that's what he demonstrates so clearly in chapters, four, uh, chapters 3 and 4. We receive that perfect righteousness of Christ through faith in Christ. Our sinfulness is replaced by Christ's perfect righteousness. And therefore, we are accepted by God. And we are declared righteous forever. We're justified, declared righteous. Paul went on from that to present our union with Christ, that we have died and we've risen with Christ. And, and thus he, he talks there about the provision that God has made for us for, for even Christian living. And, and then in chapter 8, he just dwells on our security in Christ, that we are secure in him now and forever. And then as we've looked more recently in the, those last three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, he showed how Israel... The nation of Israel, though now in unbelief, having rejected Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior, though he shows how one day they will be saved. And God's promises and the covenants that he made way back in the Old Testament will then be fulfilled and, and brought to consummation. And salvation will come to all the nations of the earth. And so it is in contemplation of all of this God's provision of salvation, God's plan of salvation for the world, His plan for the salvation of Israel. In contemplation of all of this, Paul just breaks forth in a doxology. He just breaks forth in praise. John Stott says, Paul's horizons are vast. He takes in time and eternity, history and eschatology, future things, justification, sanctification, and even glorification. And now he stops. It's like he's out of breath. Analysis and argument now must give way to adoration. 
before Paul goes on to outline the practical implications of the gospel, which he will do in chapters 12 through 15, he falls down before God and worships. And that's what he's doing in these verses. And so we begin to look at these verses by noticing that Paul is awestruck first by the outworking of God's redemptive purposes. Verse 33 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. Paul begins with the word, oh. (laughs) Oh. But you notice the abrupt change at this point. He goes from instruction, which he had been giving so carefully and thoroughly and with such depth in the first 11 chapters, he goes from instruction to amazement. Now he's just amazed, not at his writing and the great quality of his, but he's amazed at the truth as he reflects on it again. It's just like he's reflected on all that he's set up to this point, and he's overcome by emotion. And he's amazed by all that God has done and the way that he has done it and the way that he will yet complete it and fulfill it. If this were in our vernacular, we might say, Oh, wow. We might say, can you believe it? We might say, unreal. And then he speaks of the depth. He says, the depth. And Paul's going to talk about three qualities of God that so clearly emerge when, as he's reflecting on the, the, the work of God in salvation that he's described in those first 11 chapters. He's going to talk about God's riches, He's going to talk about God's wisdom. He's going to talk about God's knowledge. And he speaks of the depth of each of these. Oh, the depth of the riches. Oh, the depth of the wisdom. Oh, the depth of the knowledge. And the the depth means the immensity of it. The immeasurable extent. The inexhaustible magnitude of the riches of God, wisdom of God, and the knowledge of God. So he first speaks of the greatness and the magnitude of the riches of God. Earlier in the book, he had spoken of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, the riches, the depth, the magnitude of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. And then then he had said also in chapter 10 that he abounds in riches. He abounds in riches for all who call upon him. In Ephesians, Paul says he is rich in mercy and great in love. And I think the riches of God here refer to the totality of blessings that we receive in Christ. It's the the riches of God that that are ours. Remember a couple of weeks ago in chapter 11 and verse 12, Paul said this. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He said, if their transgression, Israel's transgression, meaning Israel's failure to believe and rejection of the gospel, if Israel's transgression be, what, riches for the world... And their 
failure, Israel's failure to believe, be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? How much will the, more will the world be blessed when Israel finally does turn to Christ and believes and is saved? But the word riches there, again, it, it, it refers to that storehouse of divine blessing in Christ that was opened to us, open to Gentiles because of Israel's unbelief. And Paul is awestruck awestruck by the magnitude of the divine blessing as ours in Christ. Oh, the depth of the riches. And then the next two qualities are the inexhaustible wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge. This, let's look at the knowledge of God first. The knowledge of God refers to his just understanding and awareness of all things. But in this context, it is his knowledge of the need of redemption and his knowledge of a solution to that need. His knowledge of the means to provide for redemption. And his knowledge of the world refers to his knowledge of the world, the ways of man, and the knowledge to save the world. Now, wisdom is similar, but it refers to the use of knowledge. You see, you have knowledge, but then wisdom knows how to use that knowledge for the benefit of mankind. You know, we, we, we often do this. Sometimes we, we, we talk about uh, someone that we, we recognize as very knowledgeable, very intelligent, very brilliant. You know, you can think of different people that you know or you've read uh, uh, or whatever. And just extremely off the chart brilliant. But we recognize other individuals as very wise. And, and we kind of instinctively know the difference. You know, some people just have all kinds of knowledge, but as far as relating their knowledge to anything practical, they're, well, it just, they're not able to do it. They're just, you know, they're just headstrong. I mean, they just have it all, but, you know, it's kind of up there. They don't know what to do. But, but some people are wise. And we, we, we instinctively know what that is. They're, they're able to use the knowledge that they have, the lessons of life, to, and, and, and translate that into you know, helpful instruction. Well, in God, both of these are brought together. The riches of his knowledge, the riches of his wisdom. And Paul sees this as he contemplates the way that God has brought redemption to the world his knowledge, and his wisdom. And he is awestruck. He just cries out, oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God in bringing redemption. Just cries out, just breaks forth and prays. Oh, praise God for his great knowledge and wisdom. And then Paul says, continues in verse 33, how unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable his ways, 
Now the words unsearchable and unfathomable convey the idea of the inability of the human mind to fully grasp the things of God. Let me say it again. The inability of the human mind to fully grasp, to fully comprehend, to fully understand the things of God. They're simply beyond our ability to fully understand. And he says how unsearchable are his judgments and the judgments of God refer not just to his judgments in the sense of a judge or judgment against sin but the, the word is broader than that and, 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 and has the idea of all of his decisions that God has made as the architect of the universe. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways unfathomable his ways his ways refer to the administer, administering and and the carrying out of his plan of redemption we get a glimpse of this when we when we begin to understand the and accept the holiness of god i think that's where it that's where it begins it begins with understanding the holiness of God and the necessity therefore of God's judgment against sin if God is holy God is righteous and just he must he must judge sin we talked about this earlier we while we while we think we might like a God that is soft on sin we wouldn't ultimately want a God that is soft on sin because that removes all moral standards and, and if that's the case anything goes and everything's okay but when we begin to understand the holiness of God the necessity of judgment we also then begin to see the love of God who desires to save and we begin to understand that there can only be, only be one way of salvation because God is love and he wants to save us, but God is holy and he must judge for our sin. And somehow the wrath of God must be handled, must be dealt with, must be satisfied. And then we see that he provides for our salvation. The only way possible only way possible to provide for our salvation through his son it's the only way it can happen but in order for that to happen his son must become one of us so therefore the eternal son of god must take on human flesh in order to stand in our place and to bear the wrath of a holy and loving god and as we begin to glimpse the ways of god in salvation and, 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 and see God is the grand architect of this plan we begin to say with Paul how unsearchable how incomprehensible are his judgments and unfathomable his ways we move on in the passage and next we see that Paul is awestruck by the comparative greatness of God 
verses 34 and 35. Let's look at 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Paul is quoting from the Old Testament here as he so frequently does as we've seen in the book of Romans and he asks three rhetorical questions here in these two verses and you know what rhetorical questions are they're a question that it's designed to engage the reader the reader's mind in thinking and the first one is well who has known the mind of the Lord quoting from Isaiah 40 the question is is there any human mind that can even begin to compare with the mind of God the mind that was able to conceive of this universe, the entirety of it and how it all fits together and it operates as a system. The mind that was able to design the human body with circulation, a lymph system, digestive system, nervous system, organs, brain, and they all are amazingly interrelated and they function together. That's the mind of God. The mind that was able to design the plan for redemption and sovereignly put it into place to save those whom he has chosen without violating the free will of any. So Paul is awestruck by the greatness of God. No human mind can begin, can even begin to compare with the mind of God. The second question Paul asks, or who became his counselor? In other words, who on earth is in a position to offer advice to God? You know, a lot of people think (laughs) they'd like to offer some advice to God. They think they could run the world better than God. They'd like to suggest some better ways. The humorous illustration of this. In the movie, Bruce Almighty, I don't know how many of you have seen that movie, but it's Jim Carrey and... uh, he has given, Morgan Freeman, is it Morgan Freeman? Morgan Freeman uh, plays the part of God in the movie. And Jim Carrey, you know, he's just throwing a fit. God, why are you doing this to me? Lost his girlfriend, lost his job, had a car wreck, everything, you know, and he's in a fit of anger. And so God, in the person of Morgan Freeman, visits him and, uh, and so gives to, uh, basically Jim Carrey suggesting that he could do a better job, and God could, of, of running things. And so he gives to Jim Carrey, uh, Bruce, whatever his name is in the movie, uh, the powers of God for a period of time. And so, of course, he's got all this power that he does weird and selfish things with. But, uh, and so he has to answer prayers, okay, because God answers prayers. And so he's, and, and, and they come to him through his computer, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and so he's, he's at his computer trying to read these, and they're boing, boing, boing. You know, they're popping up like crazy, you know. And he's just getting overwhelmed and frustrated. I, I, you know, I can't handle all these prayers. And he goes, and he, and he clicks the button, yes, to all. And so all the prayers get answered. And so the next day, the newspaper reports, two million people won the lotto. <laughs> but they only received $6.47 each. <laughs> We think we could do a better job than God. But no one can begin to presume upon the mind of God and the ways of God, and the knowledge and wisdom of God. And then the third question that he asked, or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? The question means, <laughs> who's given to God something so that God 
then, then owes that person something and might pay it back to them. The question is designed to elicit the response, are you kidding? God doesn't owe us anything. In light of what he has done, we owe him everything. And so Paul is awestruck by the incomparable greatness of God. The best of man's wisdom is nothing when compared to God. And we owe God everything in light of what he has done for us. So he's awestruck by the outworking of God's redemptive purposes, his divine riches, his wisdom and knowledge, and by the incomparable greatness of God when seen compared to man. And now thirdly, he is awestruck in verse 36 by the preeminence of God in all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, notice he begins, verse 36, with the word for, and he's given the reason why no one can function as his counselor or no one can put God in their debt. It's because from him are all things. God is the source of all that exists. He brought all things into existence. Through him, Paul says, are all things. This looks at the idea of design. Not only did all things originate with God in the sense of raw materials, but all things came through him and are thus fashioned and ordered and put into place by him. And not only that, all things are to him. To him are all things. All things are created and fashioned for him and for his purposes. And the world belongs to God. And it's ultimately for him. And therefore, Paul says, to him be the glory forever. Amen. At this point, Paul's mind is just flooded with the truths of what God has done, not only in creation but in redemption. He thinks of the great provision in Christ and God's purpose to save the world and to save Israel. And he thinks of God's great wisdom and knowledge and incomparable greatness. And he cannot but exclaim, all glory belongs to him and him alone. Paul is awestruck by the great work of God in the world, and the universe, and in redemption. The wisdom of knowledge of God to design it, the wisdom of and knowledge of God to provide it and bring it to fruition, and may it be somehow, may it be, that we might share in this sense of being awestruck at what God has done for us. Einstein said, He who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. John Stott says, Our theology, what we know and believe about God, and our doxology, our worship of God, should never be separated. Our theology should always result in worship and our worship should always be informed by good theology. 
And you know, this is the challenge we face at the Christmas season each year. The familiarity with the event and the busyness of the season all but robs us of any awe of the event. But consider it again. As we look upon the manger, may we be awestruck by the divine riches that are ours through Christ. Paul says he made himself poor that we might become rich. The manger is not a story about a cuddly baby. The manger is a story about the incarnation and the work of redemption that God is doing. As we consider the birth of Christ, may we be awestruck by the wisdom and knowledge of God in this design of the coming of the Savior, the eternal God, laying aside His eternal glory and power to enter this world as a baby because, because the only way He could redeem us was to become one of us and to be fully human. He had to be born as a human. The plan of salvation, God's purpose to redeem the world, began with the birth of a child in an obscure village in an otherwise insignificant nation. But redemption, the redemption of the world began that night. How unfathomable are his ways. And as history proceeds from that event, there is what we might call the visible, the visible track of history. We see the rise and fall of kings and nations. We see great battles fought and won and lost. We see famines and genocides. And that might lead one to believe that the world is simply on its own random course. But at the same time, proceeding from the birth of that child, there's the work of God that's going on in the world in which God is calling to himself from every nation a great and innumerable multitude. And so may it be, may it be that at some time, at some point at this season, that we might be able to say with awestruck awareness, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word that you've given to us. And it is our prayer that as the author of the word, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And that it would be your word that is communicated here. It is your word that would be heard. You, it is your word that would be received. Lord, the truth of your word. And Father, as we are reminded here through the words of the apostle 
of the greatness of your ways, the greatness of your wisdom and knowledge and your riches, the unfathomableness of your purposes and your ways. May it be that we might join in that experience, Lord, of understanding. Spare us, Lord, from just routine. The routine of our day, the routine of our week, the routine of this season. But Lord, somehow, impress upon us anew, afresh. And even each day, Lord, the work that you have done on our behalf, the greatness of your person and your glory. And may we live our lives with this sense of awe because of who you are, what you have done for us. To you be all the glory forever.